Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Christian Finnegan. Not a day in my life have I ever been poor. At worst, I was like, I don't want to have to call my dad again poor. That and more. But before that, I am so touched and honored and thrilled to say that we have a bunch of of shout outs to do this week for Patreon. People who have donated $25 or more per month are Allie Cat, Mary Beachy King, Trevor Long, John LaBella, CJ Jessup, Corinne Person, and Luke Jasinski. Oh my God. Thank you guys so much. Yes, we did make it to our big goal of $5,000 a month in Patreon donations. And of course, now I'm going to make a silly song. I, I promised I'd make a silly song if we made our goal by November 15th. Now, of course... <laughs> now the goalpost moves we want to get up to ten thousand dollars a month now so you know we'll come up with new and exciting things for everyone but yes it means so very much to us when our fans do support us over there on patreon this has been a pretty scary year in terms of looking at oh my gosh keeping all this running and trying to do even more you know like Holy cow, where are our resources and how should we divvy them up? So fan support on Patreon has become essential to us. And there is so much content over there that is not already available on the free feed. There's so many bonus stories and check-ins. I'm thinking of recording a new check-in today after I finish this episode. There's just so much. So everyone else, get on over there. If you haven't become a patron of ours yet, it's at patreon.com slash risk. That's patreon.com slash risk. Become a patron of ours today. Thank you so much to everyone who already is. And uh, now here's the show. Whoa, whoa, whoa. 
Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Panow behind me now. And we are calling this week's episode Pulling Through. Oh, did you notice? It, it was a cover. There was a cover of the Risk theme at the top of the show. That was a Risk fan named Tim McMiller, who has a band called Protest the Hero. Look them up. Now, Tim did, you know, a cover of the Risk theme song. Back in the day, in the first couple seasons of Risk, fans would write all kinds of songs and sketches and interstitials for the show. If you want to know how you can do that, just email me at kevin at risk-show.com and maybe we'll feature something you've created on the show as well. Now, as I was saying, today's episode is called Polling Through. We have a story that was shared in Seattle, a story that was shared in New York, and a story that was shared in um, somewhere else. Not going to tell you where until I can think of it. Um, Denver! What do you think of that? Now you know where the stories were recorded. Jackass. I'm kidding. I have only the highest estimation of you for being a risk listener. I think you are terrific. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from the amazing Christian Finnegan. Christian has just been spectacular every time he's been on the show, and that goes way back to the beginnings of the show. There is a suicidal sort of situation in that story that Christian shared, just to let you know. But before that, we are going to start in Denver, Colorado. Megan DePonso is a comedian based there. You can find Megan on Twitter and Instagram at MeganIsAJoke. And here she is now with a story we call Pleasure Coma. Here goes nothing. I, uh, <laughs> it's the day after my fifth birthday, and I'm sitting there on my damp carpet in my bedroom because I just got out of the shower, and it's wet from the water. Because <laughs> I was a hot-headed kid, guys, and I had to go cool off, okay? And so I'm there, and my parents had just spent all day long putting up brand-new wallpaper in my new big-girl bedroom. And I sat there on the floor staring at it, and it was this pattern of like these little, tiny, perfect little pink hearts. And I was staring at them, and it made me angry, and it turned red, so I just ripped it all off the walls. I ripped it all off. And I didn't know what to do with the evidence, so I went into the bathroom and I flushed it down the toilet. (laughs) And my mom came up, and she was so hurt. Like, the tears in her eyes, (laughs) they made me feel so low. And then my father came up, And he was livid, and he was violently screaming, so I crawled under the bed. And while I was under the bed, I just felt this sense of accomplishment. I, like, felt this, like, this moment, like I had accomplished something. And they pulled me out from under the bed, and they asked why I did it. And I looked them both in the eye, and I said, I didn't do it. That was my first lie. That's the first lie I remember, okay? That was the first. Apparently, there had been many more beforehand, but that was the first lie I remembered. And I remembered the adrenaline and the control 
and like the power of changing what actually happened with just words. And I just got so high off of it and I never wanted that feeling to go away. In middle school, my parents tried to fix my lying. They were like, Megan, people don't like liars. People don't befriend liars. Liars are losers. Smart parents, you know, hit a preteen where it hurts, popularity. <laughs> By high school, they were tired. Uh, their, their marriage had failed. They were divorced and divided on every issue, uh, except my lying. That was the one focus. And they were done being nice about it, guys. <laughs> they were done. And I got to have two separate screaming matches because when you have divorced parents, you don't get two of everything, but you definitely get two punishments, okay? <laughs> so my mother... Uh, she held me and she was trembling and she's like, I don't know how to help you anymore. I don't know what to do. I, you've hurt me too much. And my father, he looked me dead in the eye and he said, I'm done. I am done with you and you're going to have to find rock bottom by yourself. I'm a liar. <laughs> I say that in the way that like uh, a recovering alcoholic is always an alcoholic. Like I am a recovering pathological liar. And uh, in that moment when they had, they had let me go, I had pushed my parents so far where they were done. And I felt like the weight had been lifted off of my shoulders. All right, I felt free. I didn't feel like I lost allies. I felt as though the, the jail cell door had just slid open. I was free to be a shit dick. Uh, <laughs> My sophomore year of college, I, I partied a lot because school was pretty easy. Um, I took a lot of Adderall to be able to write papers for kids who are richer and dumber and lazier than me. <laughs> I like to party and I like to hustle, so I sold drugs. Uh, but, like, just one drug, one specific drug. I sold pot brownies, edibles, yeah. Um, but not like just like a batch I'd make every now and then. <laughs> no, this, I had like an operation. I had, I had people working for me in production and sales. <laughs> All right. I had a monopoly on three college campuses. <laughs> it was pretty rad. I enjoyed, I, I would go get trimmings from weed dealers for like pennies on the dollar. And I remember I was so good at cooking weed into food that my dealer had me over to cook a meal for uh, his and his girlfriend's anniversary. I cooked a five-course meal. Uh, they passed out. I got paid in an ounce. It was pretty tight. <laughs> and, like, sure, here in Denver right now, that would be totally fine. Except in Buffalo, New York in 2009, I was a spunky little drug dealer, but I was definitely a drug dealer, Okay. <laughs> And so I had friends who were selling higher drugs up the ladder. And I had friends who were selling magic mushrooms. And I had my foot in the door with, with my marijuana trade, my Betty Crocker of sorts. And so I bought mushrooms. I bought four ounces of mushrooms. And so for the squares in the room, mushrooms, if you don't know, uh, what I found is about an eighth. An eighth is like enough for two people to trip, okay? So I bought four ounces that's like 64 trips. That's like 64 experiences of dumb college kids going to be like, I feel the colors, man. Or like, or like what is money anyway? <laughs> or have you ever really listened? I mean, really listened to the Beatles. <laughs> and I thought in my mind, I was like, all right, I got to test the merchandise. Uh, so I had some friends over, and I thought, okay, I could have a few trips, and then I could still flip it for 100% profit and double my money. So I knew exactly who to call. 
I, I called over the friends that I knew I didn't have to babysit, my friends Tony and Ian, uh, you know, two white guys with dreadlocks. And so they came over and they helped me. We each ate two grams. We smoked. We drank. Uh, they helped me divvy up and weigh out all the shrooms like gentlemen. <laughs> gentlemen who like free drugs. <laughs> and then it, there was a moment where I looked over at Tony and I was like, Tony, you good to drive? He's like, yep. And then Ian was having a moment with the couch. He was feeling the colors. So we just left him there. <laughs> and so we went out. We went out on the road and we drove, we drove to a bar. And there was a moment in my mind where we were driving and I was like, holy shit, we're in a moving vehicle. What the fuck? And then I look up and we're at a bar and we go to a bar and one of my buddies, one of my new friends who is now like my deepest, like longest lifelong friend was there, my buddy Macintosh, and he was so worried. He's like mad that I had drank, mad that I was tripping, mad that I let Tony drive. And I was like, hey dude, it's fine, let's do a shot. And he's like, no. And then I called him a buzzkill. <sighs> sucked and then we continued driving we went back and we picked up Ian and we went out driving and we talked about we talked about driving to California we talked about going on a road trip across the world which you can't do (laughs) just so you know Uh, no matter how many shrooms you eat you can't drive across the world but we were on this we were on this journey we looked at the stars and we were out until the sun came up and then I remember Tony driving me back to my apartment And I remember it being the most fucked up I have ever been because I remember noting this is the most intoxicated I have ever been in my life. And that's the last thing I remember. Apparently I went home and ate all the shrimps. All of them. 60 plus trips worth of mushrooms. And then I decided to get on my laptop Yeah, you guys get it. And then I decided to get on my laptop and go on Facebook and write a Facebook message to my best friend, my high school ex-boyfriend, my brother, my sister, and my dad. I left my mom out. I didn't include my mom. And I wrote a message that said, I'm sorry, I love you, goodbye. Sent October 22nd. 2009 at 6.10 a.m. My little sister got up that morning at 7 a.m. like her alarm always goes off and she showered and she got ready and, and got dressed and she went downstairs and as she waited for her waffles to finish in the microwave, she went on Facebook and she got the message. My 14-year-old sister got the message first. And she called my mother, who was at the gym working out, doing her pre, before she teaches workout a phys ed teacher, and she called her crying. She's like, Mom, something has happened with Megan. You have to go check on her. And my mom was like, no, no, Megan's just being theatrical. Don't worry about it. She's like, no, Megan has tried to kill herself, and you need to go down to her apartment downtown, and you need to check on her. So she went, and she banged on my apartment door for five minutes before my roommate sleepily woke up and let her in, and she burst into my apartment, And she found me there, laying on my bed, half off, half on, non-responsive. And she screamed, and she cried, and she yelled at me, and she shook me, and she called 911. She picked up all the little mushrooms on the floor that didn't make it into my mouth, and she started shouting at my roommates, what are these? What are these? (laughs) The ambulance arrived in about three minutes. And I, I remember... 
like hearing all this, but I was, it felt like I was deep underwater, like everything was muffled, and I, I couldn't, and I remember coming to in the ambulance ride a little bit, and uh, I remember hearing it, and I remember very specifically my mother telling the EMT, I hate that she's smiling. <laughs> the best joke my mom ever wrote uh and then and then the emt proceeds to tell her respond to say oh she can hear you she just feels too good she's in a pleasure coma she's gonna be okay pleasure coma (laughs) like if a mom ever had a reason to hate their daughter like she she should have slapped me in that ambulance in that moment and so we get to the hospital, and I, uh, I trip balls in the hospital for 14 hours, basically. <laughs> and I had three brief moments of, of consciousness during the trip, like, in the hospital. And the first, and this is going to sound crazy, probably, like, 60-plus trips worth of shrimps crazy. But I came to, and there were, four, or there were five people in the room, three nurses, one doctor, and my mom. And for some reason... I thought we all didn't understand language or context or anything. We had all just been born into our bodies in that moment right there. Yeah, I know. 60 plus trips of the show. So we were there in that moment, and I, as the teacher that I am, wanted to teach and educate responsiveness, so I just pulled out all my IVs and started screaming. They sedated me. Uh, the next time I woke up, there were like these deep, if you guys don't know from tripping, when you, when you take hallucinogenics, there's these deep, deep, rich moments of like, ah, they like come over your body and you just feel it, this warmth. And I woke up and I, everything was in black and white and I was in a movie. And the doctor and I, uh, we, were, we were in a convertible driving along the coast to our summer home to reconnect our marriage, you know, and like... And I looked at him with loving eyes and he wouldn't hold my hand. You know, like it was sad. And then I passed back out. The next time I woke up, the room was very dark and I was handcuffed to the bed. Fine. And, and like, I remember the blankets being as soft as the lighting and I looked around and there was my dad's friend, Sue. And, and I started crying and she almost like petted my hair and shushed me and was like, it's okay, everybody makes mistakes. And then I asked her, I was like, where's my family? And they're like, well, they're having a very hard time wanting to see you right now, but they didn't want you to wake up alone. I passed back out. The next time I wake up, I am in a hospital gown with no underwear next to my grandmother in the psych ward of ECMC Hospital. My grandmother has her arm around me. And she tells me that she loves me, it's going to be okay. And she tells me to answer their questions honestly. And I was like, answer what questions? And so I go into a room with these two psychiatrists. And they start off, they start off with, Megan, why did you overdose and try to kill yourself? I'm like, geez, buy me a drink first before you make me feel bad about myself. I become sexually attracted to you, right? Like, Like they start... 
was so hard because like I don't remember. I couldn't remember getting dropped off at my apartment. I couldn't remember getting on my laptop and sending that horrific message. I couldn't remember shoving handful of handful of poisonous mushrooms into my mouth. I couldn't remember packing a backpack. Wait, the backpack. The ba- I shouted at the doctors. I was like, the backpack, the backpack, and they're like, what? It's like the back. My fr- okay, doctors, listen. I was just a stupid high teenager who was out tripping with her friends, and we talked about driving to Canada, or driving to California, and we were going to go through Canada, so I thought I couldn't take the shrooms, so that makes sense, so I ate them all. And in that moment, I realized that I had just, I just hurt everybody that I love. I had just, and there, no one had any reason to ever believe me. I had just since spent my entire life lying, and here was this vulnerable moment And the doctors let me go, and they accepted my answer. And we got back to my house. My mom drove me back, and I showed her the backpack, and she sat sat there just in silence on my bed. And she didn't say anything except at the end. She's like, I don't want you talking to your little sister for a while. And a few weeks after everything blew off and everything cooled down, um, I called my little sister, and I was like, Tori, why did you think, to my sister, I was like, why did you think... This was a suicide. You know, you know if I wrote a suicide note, I would have been theatrical. I would have gone out in a poetic bang. And she's like, no, no, Megan. If you, if you had truly given up, if you were really done, you only would have said three things. I'm sorry. I love you. Goodbye. Thank you guys very much. This is just incredible. This is, this is beyond explanation. All you can do is fucking experience it. What I saw, I can't put into goddamn words, people. Everything changed. Like, it's hard to describe. Like, nothing's real. This Celtic Hannah pattern grew like out of this eyeball and like went around her face and then went up and then into her eyes. My whole body felt wet and it just, it was all vibrant. I looked down and I see this weird, like, this weird energy reaching up at me and I'm just like, what the fuck? Occasionally, I will accuse my wife of uh, using me as her emotional Sherpa. You guys know what a Sherpa is, right? That's when you're like, you want to climb to the top of Mount Everest, and there's the people who live around the base of the mountain, and you can hire them to carry your gear. That is essentially my role in my marriage. Uh, my wife is extremely busy. She owns and operates a performance venue, uh, not unlike Caveat, and the people, as I'm sure they could tell you, it's very stressful. There's the health department, there's you know staffing issues, things break all the time, and so it usually seems like my wife is carrying around 15 pounds of anxiety in a 10-pound bag, and that is where I step in, me, Tenzing Norgay reborn. What will happen is my wife will offload some of her anxiety onto me, which will then allow her to go about her life and get done the shit that needs to get done. And I'm not complaining about this. It's something I'm rather good at. If any of you are a person like this, you know 
it's not hard. You don't need to do much to be an emotional Sherpa. All you really, really need to do is to be present, like physically, but more importantly, emotionally. When your partner's upset, you have to listen to them and not just listen, but absorb the actual anxiety that is coming out of them. Uh, like when my wife is angry, I have to get angry to relieve some of that for her. I have to suck it out of her like a magnet. When she's sad, I need to be sad. And then I take all that excess emotion and I stuff it down really deep where no one can find it. And I only release it when I am uh, watching a Knicks game and I can scream at the television. That is just how I process it. You might process it somehow differently. Now, uh, I, I like to joke that it's my wife's fault that she's doing it, but she knows that this has kind of always been my thing. It's how I've distinguished myself amongst other men. I have never been uh, the smartest, never been the coolest, never been a hard worker particularly, but I do know how to carry weight. That is my gift. And I was not always as self-aware about this as I am now. Uh, when I was in high school and college, I would ask myself, why is it that every girl wants to unload her heavy shit on me? It must be that I'm in the theater. Which I was. I went to a performing arts high school and I uh, went to uh, NYU Tisch School of the Arts, same with Kevin. And uh, let's not woo for Tisch, but <laughs> let's be real here. They don't need that. But I always thought like, oh, clearly it's because I'm in the arts. All of my girlfriends are maybe more dramatic than the average person. And so I was very excited when I started dating Caroline. Caroline was a finance major, which I know, ew. Um, but I had never dated anyone like Caroline before. She was beautiful and she was mature. She was two years older than I was, which is a big deal when you're in college, you know? And, and uh, she treated me like a dirt bag, but in the best possible way. Does that make sense? Like she was my first finance major and I was her first artist. And she thought I was like, like the bad boy from the wrong side of the tracks. Like, there was a song I used to love at the time by a songwriter named Shannon Worrell uh, called Poor Boy. And uh, the chorus of the song went, money feels dirty and I need a poor boy to keep me clean. And I thought of myself as being her poor boy. Which, of course, is hilarious because I grew up in suburban Massachusetts and I could afford to attend NY fucking you. Not a day in my life have I ever been poor. At worst, I was like, I don't want to have to call my dad again, poor. <laughs> but you could not have convinced me of this in 1994. At the time, ah, I was living on the cutting edge. I was Lou Reed circa 1976. <laughs> I was her struggling artist, and Caroline was to be my normie queen. So I thought, okay, she's a finance person, so I'm not gonna have to deal with any of that heavy emotional stuff this time. Well, this is funny, I did not know this, but apparently it is possible for someone to work in finance and still have a complicated inner life. <laughs> I know, I know, I know, shocking, it's true. <laughs> now, I know I've been joking around a lot, and I'm sorry that I kind of have to get, just say this because to move the story forward, and uh, it's kind of heavy, and I don't mean to make light of it, so if it feels like I'm being flippant about this, please know it's only because I'm a horrible person. About six weeks into my relationship with Caroline, she started suddenly uncovering repressed memories of years upon years of sexual abuse that she had suffered at the hands of her father. And again, not trying to make light of that, but it's how it happened. 
And when she confronted her father about this, he never admitted it or denied it. He just suddenly started sending her $500 a month without ever explaining why. This was essentially payoffs. He would just start sending her money. Now, of course, to Caroline, this felt like blood money, and she didn't want to save this, and so she would spend that money by taking me out to dinner all the time. Her poor boy. (laughs) And so what would happen is that she would take me to a fancy restaurant, or what I considered to be a fancy restaurant at the time. It was my first time having a Caesar salad. And... (laughs) We would order salads, and we would order appetizers, and we would order entrees, and then Caroline would order a second entree, and I would ask her to stop, and she would say, I have to do this, and then she would order maybe a third entree, and then she would order two desserts, and then she would excuse herself to go to the ladies' room with a toothbrush that she always carried in her bag at all times to uh, stick one end down her throat and the other end to clean herself up afterwards. This lasted about a year. This was our relationship. It was a year, which is an eternity when you're 20 years old. Now, this may shock you. Our relationship did not end well. I made the mistake of moving into her apartment, even though she was just starting an internship at a Wall Street firm. And what I discovered is dating a dirtbag isn't quite so romantic when you come home from your long day at a Wall Street office and you find your artist writing shitty poetry in his underwear at 7 in the evening. So she started sleeping with a day trader at her company. In fact, not only sleeping with him, like rubbing it in my face, like she brought him back to the apartments. Because one of the things I think if you've ever dealt with someone who's gone through stuff is that damaged people tend to damage people just how they express the damage that they have personally felt. So I moved out of the apartment, I uh, moved on with my life, and we had about a seven month period where we didn't speak at all, but somehow over time, we ended up actually being friends. And cut to about two years later, we hung out all the time, we had both graduated from college at this point, Caroline had taken a job at a Wall Street firm, and I was making my mark as New York City's shittiest waiter. (laughs) We decided to give our relationship another go, And my thinking was, you know what? Clean slate this time. She hadn't done the toothbrush thing in months. She seemed to be in a really good place. I didn't feel like I was gonna bring her back to that place. And we weren't living together. We weren't even in the same borough at this point. I had moved up to Morningside Heights and she had moved off to, at the time, very strange and foreign land known only as Astoria. Uh, By the way, my current home of 17 plus years. But at the time, nobody was moving to Astoria in 1995. So she had her own apartment. That's what made this amazing. She was the first person I knew who actually had her own, and when I say own apartment, I mean like no roommates, none. (laughs) I started dating her and it felt like a genuine adult relationship and I loved it. The only downside was that every once in a while I would get like an 11.30 phone call. She was working Wall Street hours, so she would be working, you know, nine in the morning till nine at night, and then sometimes she would go back to her apartment and she would be very lonely and she would call me and ask me to come over. A good Sherpa is always on call, and so I would then have to get on the one nine at 110th Street and then go down to 42nd and then change trains and get on the end, take it all the way out to the Ditmar stop, walk 10 minutes to her place, and then by the time I got there, she'd already be asleep. That's generally the way it worked for the first few months of act two of our relationship. So I started to resent having to go out there On this particular night, I resented it a lot because it was three days after the blizzard of 96, which at the time was the third biggest snowstorm in New York City history. She called and I could tell that she was drunk, like more drunk than I'd ever heard her in my life. She was slurring her words and I did not want to have to go out there, but she kept saying, I'm scared. I need you to come over. I'm scared. And so the subway was not an option. 
because there were still roads that weren't plowed, so the NW was completely fucked at the time, so there's no way to get out there. So that meant that I, Mr. Poor Boy Waiter Kid, had to take a livery car for $37. 37 $37,1996. I bought a house a few years ago, and that caused me less anxiety than hearing the words $37 come out of the livery cab driver's mouth. But I got into the car, and because roads were closed, we got lost, and it took me almost an hour to get out to Astoria. But one way or another, I finally uh, I got to her apartment, and I trudged through 18 inches of fresh snow in my Chuck Taylor canvas sneakers, <laughs> and I went into her apartment, and I said, Caroline, no answer. Fucking damn it, she's asleep. I, I was like, how dare she make me come all the way out here? But the lights were on. Why would the lights be on if she was asleep? So I was like, all right, I'll turn off the lights and then I'll crawl into bed. But first, I might as well go take a leak. And so I went into the bathroom and Caroline was in the bathtub. I could see her face. Her face was above the water, but the rest of her body was hidden under a pool of just red, opaque water and her nose was just bubbling above the surface. And as, literally as I walked into the bathroom, her nose sunk under the water. I have a hard time piecing together exactly what happened at this point. I do remember that I plunged my arms into the tub and I scooped her up under the armpits and I pulled her onto the bathroom floor. I remember the sound of her skin hitting the bathroom tiles like I was uh, pulling like a prized tuna onto the deck of a fishing boat, just a whap sound. And, and I was holding her in my arms and I was like shaking her and I started patting her face and then she wasn't responding. And so I started like slapping her and pinching her and pulling her hair and screaming just anything to get her to respond. And she, she didn't, she looked pale, but she didn't look blue. She looked pink. She was completely pale, but she had bloody water all over her face and it gave her this strange look, kind of like an actress in a colorized movie, like Judy Garland in the colorized version of The Wizard of Oz, except, you know, naked and covered with blood. And finally, I was able to get her to react, and her reaction, when she came to, she was actually annoyed by me. She just kept saying, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And so I picked her up and I dragged her from the bathroom to the kitchen, her heels just dragging blood across the hardwood. And I brought her into the kitchen and I propped her up against the fridge. And she kept saying, I just wanna lay down. I just wanna lay down. I just wanna lay down. I was like, you can't lay down. You have to stay up. And so I kept trying to go through the kitchen drawers to find something, and then she kept falling and I'd have to hold her with one arm while I looked for anything. And finally I found a roll of duct tape and I just took it and I started wrapping it around her wrist. She had three inch gashes, vertical gashes going up each of her arms. I wrapped it as tight as I could. And the thing that kills me the most about this is that I didn't put fucking towels on her arm first. I wrapped duct tape around her naked flesh. And so whatever happened once she got admitted, sorry. It's the part of it that bothers me. It's of all the things I handled, I can't believe that I was too stupid to just get a dish rag or something to protect her skin, but I didn't. So at this point, I was able to kind of stanch the bleeding and Caroline was coming to a little bit and she was starting to become a little lucid. She refused to let me call an ambulance because she had just moved into the apartment two months previous and she did not want her neighbors talking about her. And if anybody has ever lived in Astoria with a Greek landlord, she kind of had a point. They're, Chatty Cathy's. And so that meant that we had to travel the 10 minute walk to the Ditmar stop 
where all the livery cabs would congregate. Um, but you know, if there's one thing a Sherpa is good at, it's a long trek through the snow. So I gathered up her stuff and I put some clothes on her and we left the apartment and what should have been a 10 minute walk ended up being more about 30 minutes because of the elements. We were just literally having to step through 18 inches of snow. And then she got very giddy and manic and she started jumping up and down and throwing snow on my face. And she was hopping from one foot to the other, pretending to be Jack Skeleton from the Nightmare Before Christmas because she wanted to make light of it. And she kept making fun of me that I was taking her to the hospital. She's like, I have gauze. I have gauze. I'm like, this is not, should have told me that before I got the duct tape. But I piled her into her cab and I just said, take me to a hospital, just any hospital. And so by the time we actually got to Elmhurst Hospital, she was pretty lucid at that point. In fact, she was acting quote unquote normal to the extent that I actually did wonder, am I overreacting here? Am I being silly? Should, did, did we even need to come here? Am I, am I wrong? And we went up to the emergency room desk and she said, the woman said, what's the emergency? And I just held up her arm and I said, she cut herself. And Caroline said, accidentally. So the woman said, go sit down. And so that's why we found ourselves sitting in the waiting room. And one minute before, I felt like I'd been staring into the face of death. And now I was sitting under flickering fluorescent lights watching an episode of Sister, Sister. <laughs> so we waited about a half an hour until finally they admitted her. And once they admitted Caroline, I went back to the apartment and I tried to clean up the scene as best I could. I mopped up all the blood, I threw out all the towels, I took a toothbrush and got on my hands and knees and scrubbed blood out of the grout in the kitchen tiles. And when I was finished, I took all the linens and everything that was stained with blood and I put it in a garbage bag and I threw it in the dumpster, which was apparently a huge fuck up on my part. She was very upset at me after this. It's like, okay, I understand that towels are expensive, but what do you think, I'm going to walk into a laundromat with <laughs> a bunch of bloody towels and say, oh yeah, human blood. Oh, not just anyone, my girlfriends. So a few hours later, I got a little bit of sleep and then I went back to pick her up. I was given a choice. They wanted to admit her and Caroline was dead set against this because she was convinced that the people at her job would never let her continue to work there if they found out that she was quote unquote crazy. So they told me that they would not admit her provided that I would take personal responsibility for her care. Because of course, I mean, on the one hand, you have dedicated licensed health professionals, and the other hand, you have a 23-year-old waiter. <laughs> so I took responsibility for her. We went back to her apartment, and we stared at each other for a couple of hours, and then eventually she fell asleep, and I fell asleep next to her. And I remember thinking to myself, I am in over my head. I can no longer be the guy for this. So I am gonna stick around for another five months tops. <laughs> and then I am out of here. So we dated until summer, right around the time where Caroline was finally able to wear short sleeves. And this time we broke up the right way. We stayed friends. Her mom flew to New York and we packed up a U-Haul together and she moved to Arizona and eventually she met a college professor and they got married and they have kids and they seem to be in great spirits and we actually were friends for a long time. We would talk once a month and I still loved talking to her because we reminded each other of, a, of not necessarily a good time but a different time. I was a reminder of her crazy New York City years and she was a reminder that at one point in my life I had done something that could be vaguely described as heroic. Then 
we actually remained friends until around the time that I got serious with my wife. Um, and I felt like I had to sever things at that point because you can't really move forward with a relationship with your best self if you are still carrying around someone else's shit. Okay, I will admit, I did not realize that. I was informed of that. <laughs> and eventually it sunk in. <laughs> and that's fine. I mean, I, I, you know, I still get to feel like a hero occasionally, even being a married person now. I mean, I, I've never had to pull my wife out of a bathtub full of blood, but on her behalf, I did go to Costco last week on a Saturday. <laughs> I have not spoken to Caroline in 15 years. I wouldn't know how to get in touch with her if I wanted to. I suppose there is a vague chance that she might listen to this. And if she does, I just want to say, I hope you're doing well. I hope you're happy. Thank you for letting me be your Sherpa. And I'm glad you called. Thanks. Risk. This is the band and the staple singers together. Gives me great pain to bring the volume down before Mavis Staples starts singing for crying out loud. Before that, we heard from Christian Finnegan, and before that, a little interstitial from our episode editor, Jeff Barr. Our final story on this week's episode is a really unforgettable one. This was shared the last time we were in Seattle. The storyteller is Jen Gavlin. You can find her on Instagram at Flux Ceramics. And here she is now with a story we call Living for Today. Osprey twirls her finger over her head and points to the right side of the river and calls out, Eddie out! It's our third day of whitewater kayaking. And I am loving it. The water is so clean and the air is so fresh that it feels like it cleans the city out of my lungs. And the value walls in this canyon are this riot of chartreuse green and goldenrod yellow. 
And maybe all of this is distracting for me because as I use my paddle to direct the kayak towards that right eddy, I'm paddling on the left and I'm shifting my weight to the left as well, which is the wrong edge. And so I'm also feeling my kayak slowly tip. And the thought that is running through my head is, oh God, I'm going to be underwater and upside down soon and there's nothing I can do about this. Uh, My husband, Pat, our two cats and myself moved from Chicago to Seattle seven years ago so that I could start grad school down in Portland and he could work in tech. I'm sure none of you guys have similar stories at all to that. So it's six weeks into grad school when I get a phone call from the orthopedic doctor who has recently run an MRI for me on some knee pain that I've been having on my my left knee. Something about his tone in the voicemail tells me that I'm going to skip my art history class and give him a call back. So I'm sitting in the cafe at the art school looking out Um, on this beautiful Pacific Northwest greenery when he answers the phone and he says, this is going to be kind of hard to hear, but there's something on the scan and it's probably a cancerous tumor. It might not be, but that's what it looks like. And he goes on to talk about talking to the oncology department and something else and some other stuff. And all I can really do is zero in on this green leaf that's directly in front of my face, right outside the window, because everything is so surreal in this moment. This can't be happening. I have to still be asleep right now. I'm 28 years old, and I just got into a grad school program, and my life is just basically starting in this new place, and I'm just kind of figuring it out. And cancer isn't something that we planned for. How do you plan for that? It's going to be another three weeks, though, before they can actually tell me definitively that, yes, I have leiomyosarcoma. Try saying that three times fast. After a rigorous set of scans, um, the docs come back to me and they're all really excited because they've determined that there's only one location, which means it hasn't spread, which with my particular brand of cancer means that I've got a fighting chance. Excellent. No metastasis. So we start treatment. And... There's fertility preservation, and we do a couple rounds of bludgeoning chemo, a full knee replacement in order to resect the tumor out of my left knee, another round of that bludgeoning chemo, another little surgery because of some infection, six weeks of physical therapy, and I am as good as new. Well... There's some physical scars and emotional scars, and I have no interest in sex. Sorry, second anniversary, honey. And there's the survivor's guilt and the physical limitations, and maybe not 100% just yet. But this kayak trip, 
This kayak trip is run by a nonprofit that brings together young adult cancer folk and sends them out on these adventure trips. When we arrive, we're required, all of us, whether we're participants, staff, or the kayak guides, to pick a name. And I choose the name Kite. When I'm asked by the other folks around me, why kite? I go, well, I'm on a bunch of meds and I'm high like a kite. (laughs) But if I'm being honest, there's something about the brevity of kite and the sound, the hard k of the K and the bright of the T. The word to me harkens back to sunny carefree days. And I could use some sunny carefree days. Being upside down and underwater isn't quite what I had in mind. And this day started out really, really well. I was super excited to be starting on the water. We were entering our third day. We were going to head further down the river. And I'm sitting on the shore, strapped into my kayak. And I look over to my left at one of the other participants, BBJ. And she has this nervous grin just plastered on her face just I'm here and she's barely keeping the anxiety under wrap because I can just tell that all she really wants to do is bolt back to the vans and peel out and get away far as away from this river as she humanly possibly can we haven't all taken to the river the way I have So when one of the guides comes up behind me and launches my kayak off of the edge down into the water and I feel my stomach fall up into my throat, I am excited to start paddling towards my guide, Osprey, and feeling the warmth of the sun all around me. Two years ago, in the routine of scans, the tumors reappeared in my lungs and in my right knee. My tumors have a thing for knees for some reason. And we attacked them for a year with radiation. Now, one of my docs likes to call this spot welding because really all you're doing with radiation in my particular circumstance is taking care of those little individual things one by one, and you're not really treating the overall body. So a year after that, when they found more spots in my abdomen, it was time for chemo. I hate chemo. My first round of chemo was five days of inpatient, where by the third day, the smells of the hospital, where I have to pee into a hat in the bathroom so that they can check my urine for blood, and the sounds of the beeping machines just constantly there all of the time, and they're waking you up every freaking two minutes. Okay, two hours, whatever. Feels like two minutes to check to make sure you're still fucking alive. I'm alive, guys. For now. And then after that, they finally send you home and I get to spend my time in the bathroom 
with the toilet in front of me, dry heaving and yelling to myself, there's nothing left in there. So I'm excited when my docs say, science has progressed. We have so many better chemo options now. It's not gonna be that bad. Oh, you're gonna lose your hair again, but that's okay. What does that really matter? It matters. It all matters. The thing about chemo is the inevitability of it. It's kind of like you have the flu. It's a three-week cycle, and for that first week, I get to spend the whole time in bed on a diet of butter noozles, soup, and bread. Oh, eggs, too. Those are good. The side effects are a full body ache. Because of the anti-nausea meds, you are able to keep the food down, but it feels like the enemy, generally speaking. And water feels viscous in your mouth and has kind of a bitter taste. So you add flavoring to it, and then that flavoring starts to just make you feel shitty because it reminds you of feeling shitty. Fatigue doesn't quite encompass the sheer level of exhaustion that occurs. And the final shit cherry on the shit Sunday is I was always either constipated or had diarrhea. There's nothing in between. How does that work? So it's kind of like a really bad case of the flu, but you know that you're going to have it every three weeks. And so it just gets to the point where the good days, you're just thinking about how much it's going to suck in a couple of them. The inevitability of flipping in a kayak is also assumed. And so you train for that before you're in a situation where you're not in control. Those who are really experienced kayakers, like one of our staffers, Quickie, she is a professional kayaker. And let me paint the picture. Quickie rides in a fuchsia, tiny, tiny kayak. And she will have a child's unicorn bike helmet with a bright pink sweatshirt over her PFD the hood pulled up because there is a bright blue mane going down the back of it. And then she's owning that river, looking all the while like a child's toy come to life. It's fucking brilliant. We're not doing anything like that. Our jobs, as the participants who don't know what we're doing, is to do our best to hold tight, stay upside down and underwater and wait for someone to come rescue and flip us. If we can't manage that, we pull the eject cable and swim to shore. I'm going to be one of the good ones, though. I'm going to stay in this kayak. I got this. I got... I don't have air, but I got this. I don't have air. Where's the person? Okay, no, no, no. I'm, rem I'm remembering my training. 
I am upside down and underwater, but I'm tucking my body up to the kayak, and I'm reaching my hands towards the sky, and I'm tapping on the sides of my kayak. I am tapping. Where are you, Osprey? You are right there. Okay, I'm feeling the kayak move. It's going to be fine really soon. And my face breaks the surface of the water, and I inhale deep breath of air, thank God, and completely unfurl so that I am now at a 90 degree angle to the kayak so that she now has to muscle me from this uh, all the way up to upright. It's a little bit harder, but she manages it because she's a boss. And it turns out that the big, bad, scary thing with kayaking wasn't actually all that big, bad, or scary. I mean, this is the kind of big, bad, scary thing that sends your heart pumping and makes you feel completely and totally alive instead of the kind of anxiety that I've been dealing with that just feels like slow death. A year ago, when I went back to chemo, Pat and I had a conversation where he told me, this is your decision, but I know how much you hate chemo, and I just want you to know that I want you to try everything. And I wanted to try everything, too. I was not giving up. I was not ready to take this lying down. But in December of 2017, scans revealed that the tumors were growing again. So we would move on to another chemo, and this time a drug trial version. And so this prompted a question that I'd kind of been avoiding with my oncologist of, if I stopped treatment, if I didn't do anything, how much time would I actually have? And they'd been really good about kind of dodging this because there's all of these, you know, well... With your rare kind of cancer, and there's not really a lot of statistical, and it just all depends on where things are growing. And but in this instance, he looks at me straight in the face and he says, "You know, you're young and healthy aside from the cancer, and where the tumors are growing, I would say with confidence that you have at least six months with no medical intervention." And I hear this, and it seems very logical. It's very clinical. And I don't really have an emotional response in that moment because it's easier not to. I mean, six months, that's a concrete amount of time that I can work with. And by the fourth round on this new chemo trial, I can't really imagine continuing on this chemo trial indefinitely because that's the thing is that we're trying to keep the tumors under control and so there when people ask me well how long will you be doing this chemo well for as long as it's keeping me alive sounds like fun and i'm having a really bad day so much so that i call pat at work and make him come home to me and we're in bed He's given me some much-needed physical affection. And he says, it's really hard to see you suffer like this. I 
I just want a Seattle summer where I'm not in a doctor's office. I just want to be able to do things again. I, I think I might be done. And he says, if that's what you want, I can be okay with that. And so it's kind of a relief that next week when we go in for scans and it turns out that this chemo drug trial is not working because they kick me off. I don't even have to make the decision. And my oncologist hands me a packet full of new other amazing options that I could pursue and spend my time being poked with needles in doctor's offices. But the thing that sticks with me kind of like a, like that kernel of popcorn that gets wedged between your teeth that you can't get out is that I've spent the last three months miserable for nothing. Does that count towards my six months? Now, let me be clear. I do not have a death wish. I have struggled with depression, but I have so many reasons to live. I live in the most beautiful place in the country, right? I have a husband who loves me fiercely. I have found a community of friends who are amazing and who make me want to be a better person. And I get to make pottery in my basement of studio. It's amazing. Therefore, no, no trial. I want to enjoy all of these things. And so we do some radiation to the places that are the scariest, a spot in my pancreas, a spot on my thyroid, and a spot on my hip. And then no more treatment. Does that scare you? I will not waste my time in doctor's offices pursuing things that may or may not actually do me any good. I will not make myself more miserable and I will not make my body feel like it is at war with itself trying to be better. And so a month before this kayak trip, I start hospice. Now hospice sounds like a big bummer to most people, but I love my hospice nurse. He is amazing. He lives three blocks from my house, has tattoos up his arms, and um, gives me all of the drugs that I need. And it's these drugs that give me the energy and the pain management to be able to be on this kayak trip. Where, on our final, our last day, we get to do a class three rapid. And so all of our as participants are strapped into our little kayak, sitting in the calm of the eddy and, and waiting while Quickie gives us our final instructions. 
All right, guys. Now we're coming up to this rapid, and it's more serious than the ones that you've done before. I want you to stay to the left. Stay to the left because on the right, there's a drop off. And we're not sure that you can handle it. Now, after the rapids, we're going to eddy out on the right in once we're calm. And everyone will be there and they'll be real excited for you. But stay to the left. If something happens and you end up on the right, do not panic. We will be there. We will help you. You will not drown. Excellent note to end on. Thanks, Cookie. So when it's my turn, I peel out of the uh, eddy. And I'm using my paddle to gain momentum as I head into the rapid. The agitated water is bouncing my kayak around more than I've experienced previously. And it sends my kayak to the left, and I feel it start to turn sideways. And I'd really rather not be sideways going down a rapid. And so I bring the paddle around to swing back to the right, and suddenly I find myself on the right side of the river. Oh my God, I am on the right side of the river. I'm not supposed to be on the right side of the river, but there's not a lot I can do about it now because if I try to write myself back to the left side of the river, I'm pretty sure I'm just going to flip. So you know what? We're just going. We're going over that drop and it's going to be amazing. It's better be amazing. And it's fucking amazing. Oh my God. I hit the drop and the water sprays up around me and I land it and I come out on the other side and all of the other participants and staff are there and they're just going, ah! what did you just do? And there are a lot of times that it's easy for us to get caught up in what ifs. And especially for me. But I've learned that if I think about what might have happened if I have chosen one of those amazing drug trials, that I wouldn't be here on this river feeling more alive than I have in years I wouldn't get to share this with this group of people who understand better than most the fragility of life. The what-ifs give us frustration. The what-ifs give us disappointment. And we don't get to see the amazing things that are right in front of our faces. The way I see it, death is inevitable. I'm determined to really live for whatever time I've got left. Thanks, guys. The heart is a blue.
thought you found a friend to take you out of this place, someone you can lend a hand in return for grace. So beautiful. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is, of course, you two behind me now. And for those of you who are deep in the Risk trivia, it's the first appearance of you two on the show. And before that, we had the magnificent Jen Gavlin. Now, if you have ever thought of maybe pitching us a story at risk it's really not so hard you just go to the submissions page at risk-show.com and there's lots of helpful tips there on how to pitch us maybe you have a story about surviving some accident or having some spiritual breakthrough or trying something you'd never tried before, or getting over some traumatic experience, or making a big mistake and feeling remorseful about it, or rehabilitating yourself after you hit rock bottom in some way, or hell, maybe even just a story about the funniest fucking thing that's ever happened to you. It's all good. We want to hear these pitches. It's at risk-show.com slash submissions. Also, it is time for holiday shopping. And you know, you know the gift that you're going to get for dozens, dozens of your friends and family. I am talking about the Risk book, my friends. You can find it at Amazon or wherever books are sold or at theriskbook.com. It's in audiobook form or paperback or ebook. And it's perfect. It's a perfect gift to give. So get someone and get lots of someone's The Risk book this holiday season. And finally, come out to see us. You can always find information about where Risk is appearing live next at risk-show.com slash tour. Don't forget, we teach storytelling at the Story Studio. All kinds of opportunities there. One-on-one training over Skype, video courses that you can download and do in your own time, in-person workshops in New York, Los Angeles, and Minneapolis, and of course, our corporate workshops That is all at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Elsewhere, there's a bunch of famous people in it. Say what? Q and A. 
disgusting and scary and lovely and totally fucked up. It's a perfect gift to give to friends. And it's getting all kinds of raves on audiobook, ebook, and paperback. Where books are sold or therisbook.com. Buy the risk book.